This is the current federal tax developments for the week of September the 5th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by your state society of CPAs and by Kaplan Financial Education. Dollars coming to you today from Phoenix, Arizona, and we're going to talk to you about a few things that have happened in the past week in federal taxes. First, we're going to look at a letter from the Secretary of Department, I should say, of Health and Human Services to the Drug Enforcement Administration recommending that marijuana be reclassified as a Schedule III drug, an item that has a big tax consequence. And we'll talk about that uh, in it briefly yet. I should say potential tax consequence. We'll talk about why it's potential as opposed to actual at this point in time, but why if you have uh, individuals in the cannabis businesses in all the various states where it has been made legal in some form, you probably want to follow this very closely. Second, we'll talk about general guidance that was issued for determining the tax status of various payments made by state governments during 2023. And the IRS will ask for comments about additional guidance on these. These are payments made in 23. The IRS, by news release, covered similar payments made in 22. But we have to ask the question, what is the actual long-term way of analyzing whether such payments are or are not taxable? And so we'll briefly discuss that here. We'll also have an IRS chief counsel advice that actually clarifies the limits of a 2007 chief counsel advice regarding electing small business trusts and net operating losses. Uh, we'll talk about what maybe what they're going to do is effectively limit the reach of that 2007 uh, chief counsel advice to the item is specifically covered basically rather than having it create a broad rule that would effectively bar ESBTs from being able to ever claim a net operating loss deduction in a future year if their S-corporation holdings had a loss in the current year, which they were allowed to deduct due to adequate basis, but obviously had not enough income to offset. We'll also talk about a news release that reminded individuals of the requirement to electronically file Form 8300, the form you file to report when you receive a cash payment of $10,000 or more, that that will be electronic mandate for virtually all businesses of any size effective January 1st, 2024. And we'll also briefly discuss that remember to remember that that mandate is broader than just this form, but there is a reason why we'd want to talk about this form separately. So let's start talking first about why in the world we're worried about what you know, schedule marijuana is placed on. And this comes from a Bloomberg article that was released on August the 30th, which a number of other outlets have now picked up on. The title of the article was U.S. Health Officials Urge Moving Pot to Lower Risk Tier. And the purpose of this, as we get into this background, looks at a letter issued on August the 29th to the Department of, or should say the Drug Enforcement Administration agency head, and Milgram recommending marijuana be moved to Schedule 3. Now, HHS can re make recommendations to DEA, but DEA still controls that schedule. And what the process at this point is that that's been moved on to DEA, uh, DEA is going to take this under consideration. Now, you might wonder, since this is a tax update session, why do we care about this? But if you have been involved with any marijuana dispensaries, you're in one of those states where it is legal in some form to have a business that sells marijuana. It could be limited to medical marijuana. It could be pretty much broadly for any adult. But whatever it is, this is a big change. And because of that, we're going to watch for this review. Now, until this review is concluded and actually only if DEA decides, yep, you know what, you're right, let's put this on Schedule 3, will it actually make a difference to us from a tax perspective? But at least we'll put it this way, the situation's underway, so you probably want to keep an eye on this issue. And the reason why, we've talked about cannabis businesses before on here, and you may remember under Section 280 Cap E, generally, if a business is trafficking in certain controlled substances, and they could be illegal either at the federal or state level, that generally those businesses can only claim a deduction for their cost of sales. They cannot claim a deduction for any regular business expenses 
which makes it particularly hard on a retail establishment, a dispensary, because they have relatively lower costs of sales, but they have significant other expenses, sales, uh, rental, utilities, other things that they can't capitalize into inventory. But the key thing to note is that the uh, basically 280 cap E only bars this for selling certain controlled substances that are schedule one or schedule two drugs. Now, currently cannabis, marijuana, whatever we want to refer to it as is listed on schedule one. This recommendation would move it to schedule two. Obviously, if we move it there, uh, that would completely change the federal taxation of cannabis businesses. As a practical matter for most things at this point, uh, it would cease being this major problem we have uh, whenever we look at a cannabis business for federal tax purposes of, oh man, that, that's a horrible disaster. How do we deal with this? What do we do? You know, because you have none of these items being deductible and really switch it over to being a business pretty much like any other from a federal tax perspective, the same basic rules would apply and we would you know, get deductions for ordinary and necessary expenses and there would be no bar on it. Now, again, all of this is preliminary. We'd also have the IRS then having to tell us, you know, is this cutoff based on the date it comes off the schedule? So, and through that date, while it's still on the schedule, you won't be allowed, but after that date, you will be. Will it be a rule they will adopt and say, well, if your year contains a year it comes off the schedule, then you're good. I mean, the IRS would have to give some interpretations on this too about how we fix it if we pull it off the schedule. Now, this is not what had been aimed for by many in the cannabis industry who want it removed from the schedules entirely, but that can't be done without congressional action because Congress basically wrote it in there. But what can be done is this movement to Schedule 3, and it's become pretty clear that Congress is unlikely, while they don't want to fund any, you know, any amounts for enforcing the marijuana you know, rules and basically handling that stuff in terms of you know, picking up people for illegal trafficking and making other moves along those lines. They've been defunding that for years. They still don't feel comfortable with making the jump to totally say, hey, it's, it's, it's off the illegal list. So it's one of those issues that, well, we're not going to do anything about it, but we don't want to say it's not illegal. So that's where we sit right now. Given though the number of states that have made uh, selling it in, and more and more it's simply selling it in any form, uh, you know, to adults at least, uh, legal with certain state controls, it's unlikely that's a tenable long-term solution. So we'll see what's going on here. And this is also something that to be honest, uh, a lot of the companies that jumped in or, enter, or you know, investors that jumped in and were trying to get into the cannabis business, obviously they were all betting that at some point this would go away. So we're not there yet, right? We still have to see what happens and it is possible that the DEA may decide not to go forward. My guess is this is going to be an administration type decision. You don't make this decision to put it on, to take it off or decide not to take it off without kind of running your uh, potential change up the, up the line. You know, the secretary of, you know, basically the sec, you know, the justice department, the attorney general will clearly be aware of the significance of this. And I have to believe the attorney general will get involved in it and will most likely make the president involved, you know, in terms of be aware of what's going on. So it's one of those things to watch. Uh, and again, the process and the nice thing, if you're in the executive branch and you have a process like this playing out is this gives you a lot of time to read the room and figure out, you know, what's reaction likely to be if we do strike this down, you know, move it over to schedule three. So yeah, they, they have time to bail on it. But definitely if you have any clients that are in the cannabis industry, you want to keep a close eye on this particular uh, development. Next up, we have IRS Notice 2023-56 issued on August the 30th. And this is a guidance related to state tax payments. Now, if you remember in 2022, a lot of the states took money they received from the federal government 
And one of the things they did with it was used it to somehow send money back to citizens. Now, that money could have been sent back based on various pretexts. It could have been stated as a refund of their income taxes. It could have been stated by the state as a refund of property taxes. It could have been stated as a payment to, you know, to help them out with the COVID-19 disaster. You know, there were various ways they did it. Well, IRS faced with that, I believe it was 17 states in 22 that did this. The IRS issued IRS News Release 2023-23 that covered the payments made in 22. And in that release, they really just took the individual states and while talking broadly about the ways that might be able to be excluded, they never really got into any details and rather simply gave you a list of, well, in these states, this program not considered a state tax refund, uh, but is considered to be either a relief for due to the COVID disaster and excludable under 139, maybe it's a general welfare payment, so excludable under the general welfare rule. Maybe it was a state tax refund, maybe it's a property tax refund or income tax refund. And so they, they discussed the various ways to classify each state program. Well, the catch was some states that didn't do this last year uh, decided to go ahead and do it this year. So this year, we're going to have another series of states making payments. My home state of Arizona is supposed to be making such payments coming up here in October. Uh, and it'll be an interesting structure to see how they fall within this group. But again, every state's payment system is somewhat different. The Arizona system will be different from any other system. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what it, what it is treated as. Now, the problem is we have this weird thing. Okay, money's coming from the state. So the IRS takes a look at the various code sections that can be involved in deciding if this is taxable or not, right? So this is, and what they plan to do, this notice is general guidance. This notice will not tell us exactly how, let's say the Arizona program, will that be considered taxable? Will that not considered to be taxable? Rather, we're gonna get the general rules to outline this, because I think the IRS has come to believe that this might be a problem that won't go away. We're going to see states doing these rebate programs because politicians discovered sending people checks tends to get them to vote for you. So in any event, because of that, I think this is something we're going to see continue in some way, shape or form, at least when the states have enough funds to be able to pull this off. So that's something, as we say, likely to be seen. So something to deal with it. This notice will not itself give details about specific programs. However, it seems very likely because the IRS does promise more guidance will come later after they look over the comments they get. I'm su suspecting that we may very well see something very, very similar to news release 2023-23 that gave us just a list by each state programs, which category they fall in. I would suspect a similar news release to come out maybe by the end of this year, if not that early next year, that will do the same for payment programs in 23. Now I should say why well, it doesn't give details about specific programs. It actually does cover one fact pattern. So we will talk about one fact pattern where yes, we now know how we'll take care of this. So what law could apply? Well, the notice starts out discussing IRC section 61A. And this is a section that everybody should be aware of because this is a starting point for the income tax. In essence, gross income is defined in section 61A as all income basically however earned or however real ever received. That's your income, right? And generally the courts have referenced this as an accession to wealth has been one of the tests they do to see if something's income. An income is an accession to wealth uh, again, it's a little complicated because we have the gains losses issues. So unrealized uh, amounts, you know, let's say, you know, you've been holding your IBM stock for 10 years, you know, it might be worth a whole lot more than you paid for it, but we don't consider that income until you sell the stock, right? So we have rules like that, but variously we look at realization. Remember in this case, we definitely are getting a check from the state. So presumably you know, that is under the broad definition that looks like income. Now, the reason why the law is written this way is because it's exactly what it's supposed to look like. 
the idea is then we will go through, give a broad definition of income. So our goal here is not to define income, but rather to have a series of special rules that will tell you what it's not. That is things that we will take out of income. Either they'll be excluded from income or we, built, we will be allowed a deduction for the item. So general rule would appear these state payment programs start out as income under Section 61. Now our goal is going to be, is there an exception to pull them out? So let me just give you an example of a program that would say would be purely income. That is, you know, the state simply says, hey, you know what? We're just sending a $1,000 check to every person in the state, period. We got money left over. It's been great. You know, we got it from the feds, whoever. We got this extra money sitting around. So we're just going to send everybody a $1,000 check. And no, there haven't been any disasters here. There's nothing special. You don't need to do anything to qualify for this. There's no real criteria, except that you lived here in 2023. And if they did that, I would say that would pretty clearly be an income program. Now, these programs are never worded directly that way. So that's not something we're ever likely to see. But it would tell you about something that would clearly, I believe, be a taxable amount without question. So we're going to first start looking at the definition of what is a state tax refund. Now, state tax refunds generally would not be considered taxable uh, because all you're doing is I paid in money, I get money back. That's simply, a re that, that's simply basically returning excess payment to me. So normally, that would not be a taxable item unless I effectively took a deduction for that payment that I made initially, right? And so we look at this issue of how do we define a state tax refund and whether or not it is taxable. And this is true regardless of whether it's an income tax refund or a property tax refund. The same basic rules would apply. Now, the IRS makes clear we do not care what the state calls it. They reference a case from a number of years ago from the state of New York where the state of New York basically came up with a very, very similar to saying if you met certain criteria, you receive this payment. They called it a state income tax refund, but amazingly, nobody ever had to send a penny to the state of New York. It, you know, the, the amount of refund was not limited at all to reducing just your income tax. It was basically, you just got this money and we'll apply it against your income tax, I guess is kind of how they look at it. But, you know, because you know that, you know, that does, so we'll net the two if need be, but then we're just going to send you the check. And they ruled that, nope, sorry, that's income. You know, and based on the actual way the whole thing worked, if it was in excess of the taxes that it was first meant to refund, then it would be considered income. Generally, a state tax refund, in order to be a tax refund, has to be a payment that is limited to the taxes that were paid, that have previously been paid. So we could do that. Now, it could have been taxes that were paid and maybe even were properly paid. It was the actual tax that was properly assessed for the year. But now they've gone back and decided to refund a portion of that to people. Well, in that case, it would still be a state tax refund, right? That'll be the key. Now, when are tax refunds subject to federal income tax? Well, that's governed by the tax benefit rule and more specifically as defined for tax refunds by Internal Revenue Code Section 111. Now, Section 111 and the regulations under it make a very simple rule. You know, if we have a tax that for which the taxpayer is, you know, received a deduction, they took a deduction. Then we go back and we take a look at the refund amount. And we do a with and without calculation for the year in question. You know, assuming that that amount had been paid in 23, right? Let's say paid in 22. And therefore that amount paid in 22, we took a deduction for the taxes. Then we take a look at, well, how much, how much of that refund did we get what's called a tax benefit on? And we do that by doing a with and without calculation. We first say, okay, how would this return have changed if we just hadn't paid that amount? If we had paid in, quote, the proper amount of tax to the state and not paid in the excess that we're getting now a partial refund on. And we look at the return computed that way versus the return computed where that deduction was there on the return. And we see if anything changes uh, aside from, you know, you know, any tax or carryover. Those two things we're looking for. 
So for instance, if you didn't itemize, then it doesn't matter how much you paid in state taxes that year. And therefore, as long as you're just getting back what you paid in, it doesn't matter what the refund is, it's not taxable. Secondly, if you were, if you had state income taxes of, of let's say $50,000, and we're talking about Schedule A style taxes, well, you know, under the fact that we have under Section 164B, the limitation of no more than 10 grand can be deducted. Well, obviously, I paid him 50. I, I could have, that number could have dropped by 40,000 and it wouldn't have changed my tax dollars to the feds because I can only get a benefit for the first 10, right? And so we look back at that. Or maybe, okay, I was below 10, but, you know, uh, essentially, if my, I had actually paid in the proper amount, we would have instead taken the sales tax deduction. Well, then I just take the amount of the refund that got me down to the sales tax deduction amount. That's what we got a tax benefit one. That's what reduced the tax. We do that as well. Same thing if, oh no, if I hadn't had the state income tax payment, even though it was less than 10,000 in total, my state local taxes were, uh, we wouldn't have itemized then again. Only the amount of state taxes needed to itemize would have been anything we got a benefit on. How much, you know, at what point would we have reduced that taxes paid in in 22 and we would have done the standard deduction anyway? Well, like I said, whatever we paid in only gave us a benefit to the point that it pushed us over the standard deduction. And so the refund is looked at the same way. If we got refunded more than pushed us over the standard deduction level, then we'd reduce only part of the refund to be subject to tax, right? That's the tax benefit rule. We do a with and without. And we do keep track of the SALT cap, the 10,000, as we said. So the IRS notes that. They note that most taxpayers, the vast majority of taxpayers don't itemize. And a pretty big chunk of those that do have taxes, state and local taxes, well above the 10,000 limit. So as a practical matter, most state tax refunds anymore will not be taxable because you need somebody who is, who basically gets a refund that pushes them under 10 grand or never got to the 10 grand state local tax limit, but they're also itemizing. And that's not something you're going to find in a lot of cases. So as a practical matter for most taxpayers, if it's called a tax refund, it probably won't be a big issue. And it doesn't really matter if it's an income tax refund or a property tax refund. It makes no real difference, right? How that goes. Now, here's a second catch. Let, let's assume we decide it's not a state tax refund, right? It was not limited to the tax paid. You could have gotten this check, this $1,000 check, even if you had paid no tax to the state whatsoever, right? So it's, it's not that, right? It's not really tied to the income taxes you paid or the property taxes you paid it might be excludable under what's called the general welfare exclusion. Now, this is more a conceptual exclusion uh, that's not really directly backed up in the code, uh, but it's been developed, it's a concept that developed over time. That, you know, in essence, it seemed ridiculous to have the states pay to, you know, basically, let's say, give somebody relief, pay for, let's say, you know, they, 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 had, they were subject to this major horrible calamity so the state's going to give them money to, you know, allow them to have food and, you know, food and shelter because of the big hurricane or whatever for a time being. You know, it seemed a little ridiculous to tax that, right? I mean, in essence, then, then the state, in theory, to keep them a whole, could very well have to, because we're replacing the food and the shelter they already had, you know, could end up then, well, then we need to reimburse them for the taxes too, which kind of just chases your tail. So the concept of the general welfare exclusion got put in place. This is a social welfare program provided for a general benefit, right? It must be paid from government funds. There are three criteria. Number two, it must be based on need. And number three, it cannot be compensation for services. Generally, the second bullet is going to be the key thing we're going to focus on here. If like the program I described, everybody gets $1,000. Well, everybody getting $1,000 regardless. Let's say that in response to the, Florida, to the Florida hurricane, we give everybody in Florida would get $1,000 from the state. Okay, well, you know, there, there are parts of Florida that weren't impacted directly by the hurricane. 
There are people who, you know, depending upon where you were, may have had a very minor impact, no real impact at all. And, you know, if everybody, if everybody gets $1,000, you don't have to show you were damaged. You don't have to show you were low income. You don't, and therefore you were whatever. It doesn't matter. You just, everybody gets the money. There is no need there. Then that will fail the general welfare. It also fails if you're required to perform services to get it. That's a payment for services. So it could be. But again, sometimes these programs will work, but that's going to be your key. Is there a way to argue the payment scheme is based on need in some way, shape, or form? Finally, we can look at Section 139, Disaster Relief Payments. This is the next category that could exclude it. Under Section 139, if you pay somebody to reimburse them for, you know, expenses incurred, damages, whatever, related to a qualified natural disaster, qualified disaster under Section 139, then that's not considered to be income, right? Now, this is interesting because in 2020, remember the federally declared COVID disaster that was first declared back in 2020, right? In 2020, right, we should say. Um, that should be 23, not 21. I'll get that right. Wrong, wrong date on my slide. I'll warn that for you. So the COVID disaster ended on May 11th, 2023. Right, we ended the disaster this year. 22, the full year was, there was a natural, there was a disaster proclamation in place from the president. I know we changed presidents in the interim, but it doesn't matter. And you know, if the new one doesn't take it away, it still counts. And it wasn't actually taken away and determined to be done until May 11th of this year. Then the catch will be, hey, you know, that's, that's our disaster. So in 2022, which provides a lot of cover for a lot of these payments, uh, there was still a COVID disaster in play. And that meant if we were reimbursing people for COVID disaster problems, right? So paid in connection with the disaster. Now it's still officially a needs-based program, but generally any payment made related to a COVID issue was presumed to be need-based. This category could be the most interesting set for the payments made this year. You know, Arizona didn't jump on this bandwagon until this year when the state of Arizona decided to do it. And the problem is the checks aren't going out until, what is it? I think they go out in October and November. But in any event, those checks aren't going out until then. Uh, those checks are not related to any disaster because there won't be a general purpose disaster covering all of Arizona, at least none we know of right now. And since these payments were scheduled, you know, back at the end of the legislative session, um, it won't relate to even if there is one, which we hope there's not, but even if there is one, it won't relate to that any as well. So that'll be more of a problem. Can you make this work? And they do point out that the COVID-19 disaster did end on May 11th. And that makes it an issue. So we, we will see how that works. Finally, we discuss whether the states have to report on these uh, payments. Do they have to send a 1099 of some sort? Generally, any payments made in the course of business in excess of $600 do require a 1099 to be issued. You know, if it's not going to a corporate entity, we have to issue the 1099. And the states are generally considered to be covered by this. If they are paying, you know, something to somebody that would be income to that person, they're covered by this $600 rule. They subject some exceptions. However, a refund of state income taxes has a separate requirement. Because again, refund of taxes, we're giving back money they gave us. That is separate rule under 6050E that requires them to report the refunds of state taxes unless they are, unless they know the other party didn't claim an income tax deduction for them. So they would not have a tax benefit. That's pro that's not likely they know that. So in any event, that's there. So we've got a couple of these issues. So my guess is that we're going to find out that this year you know, we're going to kind of see, but yeah, it could get much more interesting with the 23 programs. Now, although I give specific examples, I never discuss most of the specific 2023 programs under which one could get a payment. So again, we only see generically described a state does X. And you would then say, well, okay, I'm going to look at Arizona's program. I'm going to see how it works. I'm going to say, well, okay, well, they, they kind of look like this. 
Presumably the IRS will get us past it kind of looks like this and get us to something where we'll know what to call it. There is one exception, though, in the notice where they do tell you it will be excludable. If you had a 2022 program that the state started, the state, state had to put out, get your payment in 22, but for whatever reason, you didn't get that payment until 23. Right, your cash basis, you got the 22 payment that would have been excludable under the IRS news release. You received that payment in 23. Well, if that's the case, then it's excludable. Right, if you could have excluded it in 22 because it would have been, let's say, a disaster relief payment, general welfare payment, well, it, it'll maintain that same status this year, right? Whatever it's for. Okay. Now, the IRS is looking for comments on more detailed guidance by October the 16th. So if you want to write comments, I realize that date's a bad date for comments uh, because that date is the end of tax season. But nevertheless, the IRS wants to get on this. So, you know, if you're going to make comments, probably write them, uh, write them here very, very shortly before you really get overrun with all the deadlines, right? Uh, they plan to issue additional guidance later. And we will hope it'll be more state program specific like what we saw in 22. But keep your eye out for that stuff. Interesting coming. And again, IRS is going to be issuing. So we already know there's a process and we have some more, let's say, formal guidance on how the decision's made in this structure. Next up, we have a chief counsel advice 2023-35014 issued on September the 1st. Now, this deals with electing small business trusts. And if you're not aware of what they are, called ESBTs, um, they are one of the few types of trusts that are eligible to hold S-corporation stock without killing the S and making it a C-corp, which usually is considered a bad thing. Now, an ESBT is a stock that can accumulate uh, distributions from the S-corp, unlike a qualified subchapter S-trust, which secures us to eat another category that, that can do it. And those are the two categories of what we'll call general purpose trusts that can hold S stocks. There are some other exceptions like any grantor trust deemed 100% owned by one person can hold the, the stock as long as the grantor would be considered to be an eligible shareholder. You know, those sorts of rules are in play. The states of decedents can hold them. You know, various things, voting trusts are allowed. There's very special rules. But as far as general purpose, run of the mill, I'm setting up a trust. It's going to hold S shares. It either needs to make an ESBT election, qualified to be an ESBT, make an ESBT election, or have the beneficiary make a QSST election, assuming it qualifies to be treated as QSST. So this looks at the ESBT. Now, ESBTs, like I say, have a nice advantage. We can hold on to the money. So we don't have to send it on to the kids who we think are going to blow it. But the problem is, if you do that, the trust is arranged in such a way that let's assume that it has both S shares and other activities. It has other investments. You're going to divide that trust effectively into two pieces. You're going to pay the top individual tax rates on the net income that you calculate from the S corporation. All of your S corporations taken, as, take, taken together, you're holding five S's in this trust and you made an ESBT election for each then you would combine the 5S corporation income, income and loss, but then you'd pay 37% on that number, right? The top individual rate. Um, everything else, all other assets are considered to be just like that part of the trust just exists totally separately, right? And apart. As I say, paying at the top individual rates on every dollar, regardless of what it is, is generally not considered to be a good option. Right. Usually it's not going to be tax advantageous. So we usually are using ESBTs for reasons that are non-tax. So as I noted, since we divide the trusts in two, um, the general rule is we can only include what are called 1366 items in that S portion of the ESBT for computation purposes. Now, 1366 is the part of the S corporation is the statutory rule that tells you how a, how a shareholder will be taxed on the income of the S-Corp, right? So those items that are flowing through the S-Corp originate in the S-Corporation and flow out to the individual, that's going to be the key. That's how it works. Now, this, this whole ruling comes off of some concerns that have been expressed in various places regarding the potential application, wide application, 
of a concept found in Chief Counsel Advice 2007-34019. That particular Chief Counsel Advice that was issued, say, six years ago, uh, tells us about an S-corporation, let's say a trust, which qualified to be an electing small business trust. But that trust uh, received its S-shares. It was established by a decedent's estate. And during the period that the decedent's estate was being handled, the S-corporation suffered substantial losses. And those losses were large enough to wipe out all the income of the estate. And when the estate was terminated, there was an unused net operating loss available. Now, that entire loss represented, the only thing they could take as business expenses, and so the thing that generated the loss effectively, was the S-corporation pass-through losses. And so the question became, well, if that comes in, we establish this trust now, this trust is makes an ESPT election, can we use that net operating loss to offset the S-corporation income? in this ESBT? Or is it barred? Is it considered not ESBT related, not related to that S portion of the trust? And in the notice, they held that it was not related to the S corporation portion of the trust. So unless the trust had other income, you know, that, that NOL may never be used, right? It just disappeared. It just went away. So because of that, that was going to be, you know, in this issue, right, could not deduct. Uh, the S Corporation's case had not generated the NOL, the, the NOL, the S Corporation generated the NOL at the estate level, not the trust level, right? So the trust could not pick that up and run with it as an NOL against, they could not take that as a deduction originating with the S Corporation because it detoured through the estate, looked at all the estate's income, wiped that income out, and only later kicked out under a separate special rule that allows an operating losses from an estate to pass on to the beneficiaries or the, you know, the residual beneficiaries of the estate when the estate is terminated. So he said that, that we can't do that. Now, some people are concerned though, the IRS might take the position, wait, wait, in subsequent years, that since a net operating loss is a deduction under section 172, that that was not a deduction that was granted to us by 1366, which was the S corporation rule. And so as such, while you could take those S losses against all your S income from even multiple S corporations in the year that the uh, loss was created, let's say they lost tons of money in 22, uh, if at the end of 22, we had losses we hadn't otherwise used and we compute it was an NOL we'd be unable to use it in any other year because that wouldn't be a 1366 deduction in any other year. That particular, they cite a analysis in the uh, treaties of S corporations, federal taxation, May, 2020, written by Blau, Lemons and Rowan, uh, talked about this particular issue, right? Now, that the analysis in there found that while it could be read that way, and they mentioned this whole 172 is not 1366 theory, you know, they, they thought there were other ways that that advice could be read. And remembering these chief counsel advices aren't necessarily binding on the courts, they're binding on the IRS. Uh, but because they are an analysis written by a, you know, tax attorneys with what's, let's call it one of the largest effectively law firms that specializes in tax matters regularly, they tend to get a lot of notice, right? They'll be paid attention to. And obviously, IRS agents will pay a lot of attention to that in exam. And we would expect the chief counsel's office, assuming they buy into the analysis that they wrote and published, we would expect them to take that same position in court. So this is a problem for those of us just trying to do a return, right? Creates an issue. Now, they ended up with a number of reasons why they don't believe this would apply if you had a situation where the S corporation was being held by the ESBT, the stock's held by the ESBT, let's say in 2022. In 2022, the S corporation had a big loss, passed it out. The S corporation had enough basis. The loss was allowed. But again, it didn't have any other S income, right? It just only had the S you know, that one S corporation, so this all ends up creating a net operating loss, that it should still be able to, in the following year, since we're now carrying them forward, 
uh, when they try to take that against S income in 23, be able to treat that as a 1366 deduction, even though it's being allowed under 172 because we didn't have anything to block it. Noting, and one thing to note here is, if we hadn't had basis to claim the loss in 22, but then in 23 we showed income, which would temporarily create basis and allow the loss, 1366 does control that computation. So it would have been weird that having basis would hurt us, is what effectively means if you read it the way that they, they said you might broadly read that chief counsel advice. So, you know, they said five reasons. First, they argue that it does not seem to make sense from a policy standpoint. The NOLs here clearly originated under 1366, not under the special rules, under the trust rules that allow you to pass out losses. It is purely a 1366 item, only being seen in the part of the trust that's only allowed to touch 1366 items. It says there's no reason why that NOL should be disallowed. They also said the results unreasonable. As I mentioned, if you had three S corporations right inside that ESBT and you had this loss and we had those other, we'd have income, we could do it then, but it means when we can't use against S income in the next year, you know, what exactly is the purpose of that? It doesn't seem like anything in the way the law is written, anything suggests under the law that, you know, this was the intent. It also said, well, you, we also should say, look, that, that loss they discussed in 2007 memo was incurred before this trust existed and it made an electing small business trust election. Now, the memo does not agree with this one. You know, now, they do clarify. What they mean is they say, look, they're going to distinguish it, but they're saying the key problem here is not that the trust didn't exist at the time this loss was incurred, they said the, it would, it, they wouldn't have changed the answer had the trust existed, but the S shares just hadn't been transferred into the trust yet. They hadn't figured out which trust was going to get it. Uh, it would still be the same problem. They're saying because their theory is it comes through the trust provisions, not 1366. And the, the NOL computed at the trust the estate level has no such restrictions that 1366 only has to come into those numbers. So... Now, I added that last part because it didn't really clarify that. And if you just say it based on the fact it's not trust, well, okay, it comes in a 600 series number for the, uh, for the, rule, for the allowance of the deduction. Well, the 172 is a, not a 1366 either, so it comes under 172 rules. Like, so I, I wish it would explain it a little better, but they didn't note that. Nevertheless, don't worry, it's not going to cause us a real problem, at least this analysis. Uh, they also said the, in the treaties, you know, it's like suspended losses, I mentioned, be treated better for no apparent reason. Why is it suddenly better if we don't have basis? That seems contrary to any other way we tend to think about it. You know, usually having, not having basis is normally a bad thing, right? Is it really we have some reason why we want it to be a good thing under these circumstances, the lack basis? And finally, they note that Regulation 1.641C1J does not imply any limit on the use of NOLs during ESP existence. It only talks about unused NOLs if the, you know, at the termination of the S portion of the trust. Well, you know, unused suggests that somehow you could have used them, not just accumulated because you wouldn't allow you to touch these. So it says by implication, the reg doesn't seem to assert that somehow you can't use them. Now, I will add, all of the intent arguments here are fine. If the code itself was clearly said that you cannot take this deduction, right? Only deductions directly coming from 1366 are allowed. And, you know, that, that's how it works. And unless you can directly trace it and the deduction for that year solely came at you to 1366, uh, there would be no, no choice here. We couldn't use it. But the key here is the law itself doesn't really tell us how to deal with this. That introduces ambiguity. And only once we have ambiguity do, mo do most of these reasons become relevant, right? Because now we're trying to figure out, okay, the law doesn't say if we can or can't use it. It does say we're only supposed to use 1366 items. Does that mean 
that Congress intended for us not to use 172? Or can we look through the 172 and see everything in that is 1366, or it has to be under the operation of the law? And that, in, that introduces the ambiguity, which is where we can start considering these issues. Well, the good news here is this chief counsel advice, the author of this advice, even though they would have rejected the, the estate flow through the NFL, even if the trust exists at the same time, they still are, they say that's a special deduction under 642H1. But as far as the result is concerned, yes. If your ESBT incurs a loss, right, you know, they hold as shares, the S corporation incurs a loss, you have no income to offset against, that creates an NOL, let's say in 22. You can use that NOL created by the N, in, in the S section of the trust, creating the S section of the trust in 22. You can take that S section of trust NOL and use that against S income in 23. Fully agree, that's not a problem. Next up, we're going to talk about the filing form 8300 electronically and, a lot, and other uh, items that need to be filed electronically, information returns effective this year. Hopefully you're all were aware of this when it came out at first, but we're going to discuss a little bit of detail here to remind you. In this case, this is entitled, Business Must Electronically File Form 8300, Reported Cash Payments Over 10,000, Beginning January 1st, 2024. And this is News Release IR 2023-157, and it came out on August the 30th. Congress passed a law a couple of years ago that required the IRS to mandate electronic filing for many, many, many more business returns. And that's going to include virtually all information returns, 1099s, W-2s, etc., as well as require the electronic filing of corporate income tax returns, uh, partnership returns, etc., on a much broader scale. Now, one of the forms covered by this is Form 8300, the reported cash payments over $10,000, right? That particular form. Now, one of the big changes in all of this that you have to realize is um, the mandate now occurs if we have 10 or more returns we file during the year. We as a company, we file 10 or more tax documents with the IRS during the year. So 10 or more 1099s, you know, 10 or more whatever. If we file 10 or more of these during the year, then we're going to trigger having to electronically file all of them. And again, and you know, and it'll work, let's say, if we file five W-2s, seven 1099 INTs, even though we don't have more than 10 of any single item, we have more than 10 in total, and that's going to require electronically filing all of them. That's the way this works, okay? So it's going to greatly expand the mandatory electronic filing rules, okay? We will eliminate the $10 million exemption exception for corporate returns where they don't have to be e-filed effectively all corporate returns will now need to be e-filed. No exceptions. And also partnerships. If you have the 10 or more information returns coming in on partnerships, then that'll also force you to file the partnership returns electronically, as well as if you have no information returns, let's say, or less than 10, but you have more than 100 partners, you still have to file. So basically we're going to make it so it's going to be very, very difficult and very, very few taxpayers can not e-file. But we've known about this since the law passed a couple of years ago. We knew once the IRS got the regs in place, we'd have to do it. And we turned in February that the regs were in place, ready to go. So 2024 filings that we're going to have to make in 24, they'll generally be things covering the 23 year, obviously, tend to be ones we file after January 1st, 24. Those will have to be done electronically. The Form 8300 is part of this, as I noted. But the catch is this is not filed with the IRS directly but filed via FinCEN's, basically, Bank Secrecy Act, or BSA, e-filing system. This is the same one we use for the foreign bank account reporting forms, right? The FBAR forms. That's where we find our Form 8300 is in that stack, right? In order to file with them, you do need an account with FinCEN. And this complicates matters. Remember, in, in January of 2024, you have got to be able to make these filings. And these filings are due 15 days after you receive the payment in excess of 10 grand or a series of payments that have been structured to try to avoid the 10 grand limitation, right? We know that issue. Now, because of that, there's no guarantee you can get the account set up in 15 days. 
And even better, the way you know sometimes your clients approach you, you're going to find out about this $10,000 payment on day 14. So very quickly, it's going to run out of time. Uh, you probably do want to have your clients consider taking a look at this uh, news release and getting themselves set up on the BSA site, right, to get that ready to go so they can file it. Now, remember, like I said, it's required for receipt of payments of cash or certain equivalents because we're going to expand this into, uh, you know, proposed items and other items is expanding, including into cryptocurrency and the like for more than 10 grand. Uh, in a transaction, we will be filing a report. Remember, it is the business that receives the payment that files the report and they have to get this information from their customer. And there are really nasty penalties for not doing this. It's, it's kind of a bad thing, right? That's it. As we said, if you attempt to get around the limits, that also blows it. So that's not a good thing. The news release does have information about how to obtain the account, as well as links to videos on how to prepare and file the reports. You may want to direct your clients to this because again, this $10,000 item, if you have somebody like your car dealer, motorcycle dealer, whoever that ends up getting a number of these during the year, you're probably going to be filing them at their location. They may already be doing it, but you got to remind, you got to tell them, look, this is going to change to electronic on January 1st. You need to switch over and start getting yourself ready to file this stuff electronically. Well, this has been the current federal tax developments here for the day after Labor Day on, you know, here in 2023. Uh, we'll be taking a look at what develops this week. Of course, now we're running into the September 15th, 10 days until our first drop dead deadline for the pass-throughs. So you're all happy about that. Uh, unless you're in California, right? Or, you know, basically you, you got relief or in in most of Florida now, you got some relief as well. So you, you got a different set of days now. You got natural disasters. For those of you, for, for those of you that were quote unfortunate enough, unquote, not to have a natural disaster, then September 15th is probably the date you're looking at. Uh, and most of you are in that category. So, and generally, gang, we prefer to be fortunate enough not to have a natural disaster, all things considered. Uh, we'll do that. By the way, don't forget California, there is that one county that doesn't qualify. I don't know which county it is right now. I do know it's not a very big one. And it's like, you know, it's a, that, that's ultimately left out feeling, right? You're the only county in California that had to file everything on time and pay everything on time. Well, you know, that's how things work. So in any event, that's where we're at. If you have any questions, you can email me, edzollers at currentfortaxdevelopments.com. Uh, you can also find me on the Connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, Minnesota, and Washington as well as I keep up on things that get posted on the Idaho discussion board. If you have any issues, you can post them there. If I see something and I think it can be helpful replying to it, I'll see about replying. Otherwise, we'll see you all back here next week. We talk about things that come up that are new current federal tax developments.